How many of you know who Mike Wazowski is? Raise your hand if you know who Mike Wazowski is. Okay, a few of you. I've thought about Mike Wazowski all week. I've never met him personally. But Mike Wazowski is that character in the kids' movie Monsters, Inc. He's green, he's short, and he's basically an eye. You look at him and he's got an eye. He can talk and he can walk, but basically he's just one big eye. He's been in my mind all week because I wonder if his creators were familiar with our text this morning, which says, if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, Mike Wazowski If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Now that's a playful movie, and for those of us who are parents or grandparents, we've likely sat through it more times than we wanted to. And it's the idea of a monster. And it's a fun, playful movie, but the truth is, by definition, monsters are unnatural and they are grotesque. And this text is highlighting the difference between something like that and something that is as it should be. The concept of one big eye, the idea that any entity can just be an eye or an ear, is part and parcel of our text this morning from 1 Corinthians 12. Because that kind of image is opposed to the one glorious unified body of Christ. This is the terminology that Scripture uses. And in fact, that image is contrasted with what it looks like to be unified in one body and the members all working together versus an individualism that really is highlighting some specific role or some specific grace gift as we find in our text, some specific passion as opposed to the good of the body itself. The text that we're looking at, we're working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians here in our church. The text that we're looking at is about the appropriate use of grace gifts and the fact that to use those grace gifts, the gifts that God gives by grace, thus we call them not charismatic gifts so much, but we call them grace gifts, gifts by grace. Those gifts, to use them appropriately, we have to understand not even so much the gifts, But what the Word tells us is we have to understand the nature of the body of Christ and our place in it. And that perception, that understanding of reality, it shows up in two places that are spoken to in the book of 1 Corinthians. It shows up in our walk, and when I say walk, I mean our daily walk, especially our relationships. And then it also shows up in our worship. And this was a problem that we're going to have to look at over the next few weeks in the church at Corinth. And if you'll think about it, I won't flesh out this idea too much this morning, but the truth is the way our worship is manifested is a reflection of our walk every day. You don't walk one specific way in your relationships with others, in your heart, in your life, in your care about God and His truth. You don't walk one way Monday through Saturday and then have some kind of significantly different experience in worship. The truth is, you've heard this before, as Jesus followers, all of our lives are made up with worship. And so 
whether our walk or whether our worship, the problem is there can be twisted perspectives and there can be misplaced attention. There can be idolatrous values. There can be a disordered agenda in the things that we think are most important. And as Jesus followers, as those of us who are forgiven by God's grace, a priority in the Word of God and a priority in our lives should be the body of Christ that God has placed us in. We find this in 1 Corinthians in several places. Look with me, if you will, back in chapter 6. Some of you will remember this text. The language is somewhat shocking, but it's this metaphor, this image of the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look with me in verse 15. Paul is arguing here about the problem of sexual immorality, and he says in verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So this is the first place in Paul's letter to the Corinthians that he references this concept that various members are part of the body of Christ. We see it again over in chapter 10. Would you look there? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and look with me in verse 17. 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Here he is dealing with all of the issues, remember, of table eating and, and pagan worship and how followers of Jesus are now to think about those kinds of things. And look at what he says. He, he, he's drawing out the idea of our unity and our commitment to one another, and he is talking about the way we break bread with one another as various individuals nevertheless in one body, the church. And look at verse 17. Notice he says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. So the bread represents this one bread that we partake of in communion. It represents the fact that we are one body and we all partake of the one bread. You see then the same concept over in chapter 11, verse 29, somewhat of a not controversial take. Not everyone agrees with my understanding of this text, but I think it's important. I think it's key because in arguing about all the divisions that were showing up when they had the, the love feasts and the Lord's table, look at what Paul says in verse 29. He says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, and notice he doesn't say the body and the cup or the bread. He says the body. If you eat or drink without discerning the body, that one eats or drinks judgment on himself. He's speaking there about coming to the Lord's table and acting as though you care about the body of Christ, but in your life and in your values and in your attitudes and in the way you treat one another, you care nothing about the body of Christ. And when you do that, you're dismissing what God cares about, which is his church, the body of Jesus. You better be careful that you discern the body of Christ. And then our text this morning... Look in chapter 12. And to begin with, let's just read the first three verses of our text, going back into last week, in fact, verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, look at verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, some of your translations say by one spirit, in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink 
of one spirit. The issue this morning is understanding the intelligent, purposeful design of our God in putting us into the body of Christ. How he has done that, why he has done that, and what are the implications of it. So if you remember from last Sunday, uh, where this chapter is dealing with the issue of grace gifts or spiritual gifts, the Holy Spirit's gracious gifts show that in the church, first of all, no one is omitted. No one is omitted. We see that in verse 11. All these grace gifts are empowered by the one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. By God's design, no one is omitted if you're a Jesus follower. Also, the Holy Spirit's gracious gifts show that in the church, no one is useless. No one is useless. You see that in verse 12, and we'll come back to that over and over again this morning. In fact, verse 12 is really, in a sense, a summary of everything we're going to see before we're through today. And then we find in verse 13 that God's gracious gifts through the Holy Spirit in the church show not only is no one omitted, not only is no one useless, but everyone belongs. Regardless of background, regardless of race, regardless of socioeconomic issues, regardless of that, if God has called us into the church together, we belong. For in one spirit, we were all baptized. And the idea of baptism here, it reminds us always of water baptism which is an important step of obedience. But water baptism is merely an external statement and demonstration of what has happened to us spiritually. And we have been baptized either in the Spirit or by the Spirit. I don't think it makes a lot of difference that we argue which, because the Spirit and the, uh, the Holy Spirit, Jesus the Son, and the Father work together in unity about everything that they do. And the truth is, being baptized is the idea of being overwhelmed. How's it like that hurricane last week, right? It wasn't quite a hurricane, was it? I mean, it fell a little short. I mean, if you were looking forward to a hurricane, you were disappointed. But the true idea of a hurricane is the idea of being overwhelmed. And by the way, that's the idea, the concept of baptism. To be overwhelmed, not just to be touched, not just to be affected a little bit, not just have to deal with it in one way or another, but to be overwhelmed, and that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that brings us into unity with Christ, into one body. And as one author says, this is not an experience to seek, but it's a reality to acknowledge. Everyone who follows Jesus, everyone forgiven, has been baptized into the body of Christ. And everyone who has not yet trusted Christ is not in the body of Christ, is outside Christ. This is another term that Paul uses in other of his letters where he talks about the emphasis of being in Christ. And what does it mean to be in Christ? Here's a profound theological explanation. What it means to be in Christ is the opposite of what it means to be outside of Christ. To be left outside, here, here's the way to think about it, is essentially to be left on your own. To recognize that when you face God's judgment, you face it on your own. And as we saw from Psalm 1 a few weeks ago, you don't want to do that. Because in your own righteousness, you are wicked, and the wicked cannot stand in judgment, we saw in Psalm 1. And so this is the promise of the gospel. <laughs> now, what do we mean when we say the body of Christ? I mean, think about this. Where is the body of Christ right now? Well, in one sense, it's right here. By the way, not this building. 
It's the gathering of the believers, the church of Jesus. But in a very real sense, if I can throw out a technical word, in an ontological sense, the resurrected body of Christ is now at the right hand of the Father. He was, he was taken up into heaven according to Acts chapter 1. He will one day come again in the clouds as he was taken away. His physical body will return. And so what does it mean when Paul says the body of Christ? Because we recognize that the real resurrected body of Christ is presently in heaven. It is not any longer a mere spiritual existence because since his incarnation, he shares with us a physical existence. But there is this sense in which the body of Christ, the church, is a representation of Jesus. The way I like to say it is that his physical body is no longer here. So where do we look to find Jesus? And according to God's design, he has designed our relationships in the church to look like Jesus to the world. That's the reason we are called the body of Christ. So it's not his literal body. We're not talking about some kind of ontological existence in the physical world. And it's not just merely a spiritual reality. It is the representation of Jesus in the world. We should recognize this from Acts chapter 9. You remember this encounter that Saul had? It says in Acts 9, Now as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting what? Me. Wait a minute. Jesus was in heaven. How was Saul persecuting him? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Who was Saul persecuting? He was persecuting, somebody say it, the church. And in persecuting the church, he was persecuting that which is representative of Jesus still in the world. And so what we've got in this text, even though we think and our minds immediately jump to the issue of grace gifts and, and how gifts operate, but the real issue here is the issue of people, not grace gifts. Diverse people that are called into one unified body. And in the way our gifts function... That's an important matter that we're going to spend the next few weeks on. But it's important to understand that we will never get that right until we understand the nature of our place in the body of Christ. And what Paul was doing for Corinth and what the Word of God is doing for us is radically subverting our tendency to focus on the important or on the impressive or on the dramatic. I hate to say it this way. But the reality is the way we live for Jesus is somewhat rather mundane. It's in the routine of life. We love it when something dramatic happens and we praise God when something dramatic happens. But listen, if you're living in such a way that you're expecting a miracle a day to keep the devil away, this is not what the New Testament calls us to. It calls us to faithful obedience. It calls us to regular living. And it warns us against desiring and focusing on that which is overly dramatic or overly impressive or, quote, important, unquote. And this was what was going on in Corinth. There was an undue focus or emphasis on some of the grace gifts, especially the miraculous grace gifts. So here's what was happening. Some in the church, evidently it was a very gifted church, they were feeling superior. To use my wife's term, they were the est. They were the best. They were the biggest. They were the most glorious. They were the est. They were superior. And they were exalted in pride. And this is what caused them to have divisions with one another. And it's what caused them to treat one another dismissively at the Lord's table. 
because they felt superior to others. Evidently, what we're going to see is that there were others who were feeling inferior because they were envious. And they looked at others and their giftedness and they felt either useless or they felt less than. They felt as though they did not matter. As we've already seen, they felt like they were either omitted or they were useless or they felt like they didn't belong. And so that's what Paul is addressing. In chapter 12, he addresses members and people. In chapter 13, he addresses the motivation. And we don't really get to the problems until chapter 14. And we'll deal with those in a couple of weeks. But what I want you to see this morning that Paul lays out very clearly, and there is an application for each and every one of us this morning. The first is this. We are each designed with diversity. We are each designed with diversity. Look with me beginning in verse 14. Please follow along. Verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 12. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if an ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Listen, I think we all recognize that the physical body is one of the most glorious, if not the most glorious, of God's creations. It's astonishing the way our bodies work, the way God has designed our bodies. And the same is true spiritually about the body of Christ. We are to function as a church family. We are to function in the same way that a healthy physical body is to function. The body's essence, the body's functionality, is defined by its grace-gift diversity by different people in the body who have all different kinds of gifts, abilities, and grace gifts that God has given. Listen, we hear a lot about equality, and we hear a lot about diversity today, and sometimes in our culture, not to get into politics at all, that's not the point, but sometimes that emphasis flattens out all differences. It's as though for us to really be equal, then we have to do away with all of our differences. We have to pretend as though those differences don't exist. The Bible never does that. In the equality that we are called to, there is this glorious diversity. And as one author said, Paul does not dissolve the individual into the whole. We are still individuals. We still have different understandings. We still have different backgrounds. We definitely have different gifts. That's the point of this text. We are designed with diversity. And in God's divine design for the church, he loves the fact that you are not like the people that are sitting next to you. This is the way he has designed it. And there's a very practical lesson in this before we move on. And it is the fact that we need to think through what it means to stay in our own lane. We need to think through the reality that other people have a different passion than we have. And that's the way it ought to be. And so instead of worrying, even so much worrying about identifying our own spiritual gifts, one of the things we can do is we can look at the way God has gifted the people around us, and instead of being envious, or if it appears to you they are less gifted than you, instead of feeling proud, we should thank God for the way He has gifted in diversity the people that are around you. I don't understand people that want to come down here and paint. I'm not saying that painting is necessarily a grace gift. 
there is later on in the text is a reference to helps or serving. I, I don't understand why anybody on the face of the earth would want to paint. This is a mystery to me. And yet you recognize how necessary that is. You recognize what a glorious gift that is. Do you recognize that there are people, we'll talk about this again in a couple of weeks in chapter 14, there are some people who have the gift of giving. I'd love to have the gift of giving. I'd love to have more to give out of. But it blesses the church when others have the gift of giving. And all of us are to give, but some people, they just love giving. It's like, it's like, let me know what you need. Administration and everything. There are different, diverse gifts. There's diversity in the way God has designed this. But there's also intentionality. We were each designed with intentionality. Look at verses 18 and 19. And this is very important for you to see. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body. Each one of them as he chose. Notice the two phrases. God arranged or appointed is the idea. And he did this as he chose to do. This is his will, his desire. Verse 19. If all were a single member, where would the body be? So this is the overarching purpose of putting us together in the church with all our diversity. And the truth is, it's not an accident. It's God's intentionality. And that tension that sometimes you feel, I'm I'm moving on to really practical application as I'm thinking about all of this because I recognize it in my own heart. The tension that we feel when other people have different passions and different emphases than we have and they want to use gifts in different ways and we feel a sense of tension, that exists by God's purpose. And we need to lean into it instead of fight it because there's an intentionality about the way God has designed his body. And so the point is, it's not just mere diversity. It has a level of specialization. Could it be, and the answer to the question is yes, could it be that God designed you precisely as you need to be in order to be part of this church? And the answer again is yes. There's a level of specialization in your abilities and your gift, your grace giftings. There's a level of specialization that this church needs. And God has specifically arranged it, it says. He has chosen it, it says. There's an intentionality to it all. We see this in the chapter. Would you look back with me again? This is an emphasis in the chapter over and over again. Look in verse 11, for example. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. All these are empowered, these grace gifts that he talks about in the earlier verses, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Do you see the verbs in that verse? This is God's purpose. Look down with me in verse 18. But as it is, we just read it, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Look down to verse 24. We'll get there in a moment, but look at it beforehand. Which out of more presentable parts do not require, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. And then look down to verse 28. You see it again. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, etc., etc. We were each designed with intentionality. And it is the best interest of the church for us to manifest greater diversity. 
And when I say greater diversity, once again, in the political climate in which we are living, I am not primarily talking about racial diversity, although that can have a component. And I'm not primarily talking about socioeconomic diversity, although that can also have a component. What I'm talking about is the diversity that God has built into the body of Christ in grace giftings. We need one another. So how should you pray? Just by way of application? What should you pray for when you think of our church and its needs? In a couple of weeks, we'll have a members meeting. We'll talk about uh, the redesign that we're doing outside, the landscaping we're working on, and, and all of those issues and the money we're spending. We're going to talk to you about that. But all of those are superficial things. We want God to grow this church as the body of Christ. And as you think about that, what do you pray for? God, I think through His Spirit, has impressed upon me over the last several weeks, you have not because you ask not. So what are we asking for? Because what we should be asking for, we're going to find it later, specifically spelled out at the end of the chapter. What we are asking for is for the diversity of the grace gifts that will make this church a more faithful representation of Christ's body. That means praying for people who are in the church to use their grace giftings, but it also means that God would bring other people to us because at any specific time in the life of a church, there are times when we can feel deficient, where we do sense that if we had these people who had more of a passion for this, we would be able to accomplish more for the kingdom. And that's not an illegitimate concept. And we should pray that God would bring leaders, that God would bring families, that God would bring people with the gift of giving, that God would bring people who are able to teach and teach effectively. We should pray for these things. At the same time, we pray that God would also develop our gifts to their fullness and to use them for His glory. We are each designed with intentionality. And then third, we are each designed not just with diversity and not just with intentionality, but we are designed with a built-in mutuality. There's a mutuality to the way God has equipped us and given us abilities and grace gifts. This basically means this. Before we read the text, beginning in verse 20, let me just say it this way. This means that we have, as it relates to one another, a mutual dependence. And that's not a helpless dependence. In fact, a better word is this. We have a functional interdependence. Your gifts are needed by others. Their gifts are needed by you. That's the way God put the church together. There's a mutuality to it all. You see this in verses 20 through 24, the first part of the verse. Look at it with me as we read again. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. By the way, let me just stop. That doesn't need exposition. That's just common sense. If you grant the fact that the church is a body and that we have different members, Paul is just giving common sense here. We need one another. He says in verse 22, it's almost as though he's, he's frustrated with himself for the common sense aspect of what he's saying. He says, on the contrary, the parts of the body which seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. 
Now these categories, there are all kinds of ideas about what Paul is talking about. I think what he's getting at is this. There are weaker parts of the body that nevertheless are indispensable. I don't know if any of you have ever lost your big toe. Nobody volunteered, so I guess not. But if you lose your big toe, you know the problem you end up with? You end up with balance problems. And this weaker part of the body that we give very little attention to, they tell me, physiologists tell me, that it's an important aspect of our body. You've heard in evolutionary ideas, you've heard of the idea of opposable thumbs. How often have you thought about that? How useful? We don't believe it's evolution. We believe it's God's creative design. But nevertheless, our thumbs are considered to be pretty unimportant unless you really think about, especially you think about making a living with your hands. These are weaker parts, and yet they are indispensable. And then there are the less honorable parts. Most scholars think these are the internal organs that we, we, we don't give honor to, we don't think, because they're out of sight. I haven't given a lot of thought to my liver this week, but evidently it's worked okay. <laughs> and it is important. The truth is, as opposed to my thumb or my big toe, if my liver quits working, I've got problems. It seems that Paul understood this. I don't know if Luke, the physician, had explained it to him. I don't know. But that's the point. And then the unpresentable, the unpresentable likely refer to the fact that we cover, and we with modesty, we cover up our sexual organs, but they also are necessary for the ongoing life of the body. In the idea of producing children. All of these weaker parts Less honorable parts, unpresentable parts. There's a mutuality. They are all necessary for the body. None of them are exclusive, and all of them are important and interdependent. We need each other. And you recognize what this is. This is a rebuke of the church at Corinth with the attitude of self-sufficiency, where especially the gifted members were basically saying, what do we need those people for? We come to the Lord's table, what difference does it make if they eat? We, we, we have issues of, of sophistication when it comes to sexuality, so we're not going to get upset about this guy that's having a sexual affair with his, with his uh, stepmother. We're, we're, we're not going to think about those things. Because after all, we're sophisticated. And what this text says, no, you need one another. You need one another's giftedness. You need one another's insight. It's a rebuke of radical self-sufficiency. And very often, the implication is this. The strength of a body is in those members that are overlooked and that are not seen. The people who faithfully pray. The people who labor in unseen ways and too often unrecognized and unappreciated ways. The people who give with generosity those that are unseen. And when properly understood, what is in play here is a functioning body, a body that's a body. Walking in unity. For those of you who have already felt your body betray you in one way or another, you know how painful this is. When we see someone who is profoundly disabled it hurts our hearts because we recognize that uh, the body is fighting against itself. We recognize, from what I understand, that the very nature of cancer is where the body turns upon itself. This is not health. This is not normal. This is not what we should desire. 
and in the body of Christ when there are elements, when there are members who are either working against one another or who are AWOL, who decide they don't want to participate, it weakens the body. We are to be walking in unity. And if you think about it, that's not like two people riding a tandem bike, which is a very difficult thing to do. It's not like a potato sack race. Have you ever been a potato sack race and what that looks like? That the only reason potato sack races exist is to humiliate people. That's the reason they exist. But you have two different people that are trying to work together. You see, it's ridiculous. But no, what God has designed for the church is that in all of our differences and with all of our weaknesses and our strengths, we together have a mutuality where my weaknesses are blessed and strengthened by your strengths and your grace gifts. And my own grace gifts are able to bless and strengthen your weaknesses. And together there's a mutuality and the body functions as a body in unity. And we can talk about this in theory, but when you've been through a church split, you know how painful that is, where the body turns on itself. And there are all kinds of reasons that that can happen, but what a painful thing it is to go through and to see. And nearly every one of us in here has either seen that or we've known about it. But that is not the standard. That is not to be expected The standard is this glorious design where we are made individually with diversity and God has designed us intentionally with that diversity that we might mutually serve one another. That's the way the body is to function. So, as Paul does in this text, let me move to a conclusion by telling you what this should look like in our church. What this should look like in our church And I find three things here at the end of the text. The first is this. There should be genuine unity. There should be genuine unity. Look in verses 24 and 25. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. If you've been here through our studies in 1 Corinthians, you know that this was the problem in the church at Corinth. There were all kinds of divisions in the body. And this is not God's design. He has designed us to be in genuine unity with one another, using our abilities and grace gifts not for ourselves, but using our grace gifts for the body's good health. The, The only way I know how to talk about this is just by way of personal illustration, which is very dangerous. Because when you have the privilege of being up front, when you have the gifting that has afforded you the opportunity to study the Word and then preach the Word, that is a dangerous place to live. You can become exalted. You can find yourself thriving on it. You can find yourself thinking that that's more important than anyone else. And God forbid that I ever believe that my gifting has more inherent value or even at the end of the day greater meaning than the fact that I am just a member of the body that is gifted in a unique way, in a way that's unique from others, to teach and preach. And there should be a unity where I'm not exalted over that. I'm abased and humble over it because I need the working of the Holy Spirit to keep me from a Corinthian attitude. 
That's where we all tend to be when it comes to our giftedness. And yet what happens is, and I'm using myself as a dangerous, again, a a vulnerable kind of illustration. The danger is if you use your gifts in order just to please yourself, you've missed the whole point. And this is what was happening in Corinth. And what can sometimes happen is because of our gifts and because we strongly are passionate about them, we want things to go our way and we push and we manipulate and we labor in such a way that instead of serving the church, it divides the church and it's just exalting ourselves. There should be genuine unity. I don't know if you've ever played in a symphony or a band when you were in school, but it's great to be first chair. I remember you used to challenge. I don't know if you, you know about this, but uh, I, was, I was not an athlete. So I was in music, and so there were these competitive things in music, believe it or not, where you would challenge in order to become first chair. And everyone wanted to be first chair, but the truth of the matter is, first chair, if he's the only one that shows up at the concert, that's a nightmare. Because you need what? You need everybody there. You need everybody with their own instrument. You need everybody playing their own part. You need everybody, even down to the person that rings the triangle. I always wondered what it would be like to be that guy that just rings the triangle. But you need him there at the right time in the right place. Genuine unity. And by the way, who doesn't love a glorious symphony? But what makes a symphony glorious is when everyone is in their place doing their part. That unity, the body's unity is impressive in its function. But next, that unity is also stellar in the beauty of it because the beauty is in our mutual ministry. This is what it should look like. Not just genuine unity, but also mutual ministry. Look at the middle of verse 25. Notice what he says. But that the members of the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Can I just say, it seems to me that the first part of verse 26 Most of us can do reasonably well. You hear someone suffers, and you suffer with them. The challenge seems to come when somebody somebody else has some astonishing success, some glorious blessing. I know this is beyond just the working of our grace gifts, but it illustrates the issue. Are you as willing to rejoice with others when they succeed and you don't, as you are willing to suffer with them when they suffer. And that's mutual ministry. It's what happens when one part affects the well-being of the whole, for good or for bad, in a body. You know what it's like, the, the great pain that modern people know is getting up in the middle of the night and stepping on a Lego that one of the grandkids left on the floor, right? And it affects your whole body. That's the point. So participation and partnership in Christ's body is not to be used, but rather it is, it, it, it is not to be used and it's not to be served. It's rather to be used to serve others. Let me say that in a better way. Participation and partnership in Christ's body is to be used for the good of others, not for you to be served. I know you've heard this before. 
the church is not a country club. There's nothing against country clubs. One of the things I pray for is that someone would join this church that's a member of a country club so I can play golf there. <laughs> and you see the effectiveness of my prayer life because it hasn't happened yet. But the whole point of being a member of a country club is you pay the dues and then the expectation is your needs are met. Your pleasure is met. Your comfort is provided for. It's not the way the church works. God has called you into the church. Yes, indeed, for your needs to be met by others, but that process involves your meeting their needs. And there's a beautiful reciprocity to it all. Finally, there should be only one agenda. This is what it looks like in our church. It should look like this. There should be genuine unity and mutual ministry to one another, and there should be only one agenda. Look at verse 27. Now you are Calvary Baptist. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Now I want to stop right there. When you see the word first, that implies kind of priority. The apostles have priority. And we've just spent 40 minutes so far talking about the fact that there's an equality here. So is Paul all of a sudden, is he deciding to contradict himself? In just a moment, we're going to read where he says, desire the greater gifts. And you want to stop and you say, whoa, 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 Paul, I thought we were all on the same page. Well, very likely... And once again, over the next few weeks, we'll flesh this out. Very likely when he says first, it implies not so much priority as chronology. This was the way the church had to be formed. It was formed with apostles and then prophets and then teachers. We'll talk more about that in a moment. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? And the answer is no. In the Greek language, it's an implied no. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are, do all work miracles? No. <coughs> Excuse me. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. So here is the agenda of the church. In its diversity and its unity... As a reference to apostles, they were the original custodians of the authentic gospel, as one commentator says, and their primary ministry had to do with the word. We will be working on this in a few weeks, but the role of the apostles especially, and also the prophets, was totally unique, and we need to revisit that in a few weeks because we're going to ask the question, what happened to all these miracles? And that's, once again, you all came this morning, thought I was going to answer that question. I'm still not going to answer the question. We're going to have to take, I think, a whole Sunday to address that issue. What happened to all these miracles? But in this passage, in the passage that's asserting equality and unity, there's still an acknowledgement that there's a distinction in emphasis. Some of the gifts have greater usefulness or significance at times, but none of the gifts have lesser value or place or belonging. And we need to recognize that. And so here you have the only command in the text. Look at verse 31. But earnestly desire 
the higher gifts. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. Why? Because here's what happens. They were individually desiring the showy gifts. And what Paul is saying is that God's gifted everyone differently. But for the sake of the church, you need to desire the gifts that feed and build up and bless the church. And that's what we're going to find, especially when we land in chapter 14. But this is another way, basically, of saying this. Love each other. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love others. And that's the reason at the end of the chapter he says, do you see it? Verse 31, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And that brings us to chapter 13, which nearly all of us recognize is the love chapter. So the issue, the motivation, the heart issue of all of this is the way we love one another. And if there's no love for one another, as we'll see next week, then the gifts will not be used in unity and in blessing. So that's who we are. We're to be a church of genuine unity and mutual ministry, and there should be only one agenda, and that is ultimately the agenda of love, the agenda of serving one another, of desiring the health of the body. Nose in hand, we're sitting in the church pew talking. The morning service, led by ear and mouth, had just ended, and hand was telling nose that he and his family had decided to look for a different church. Nose responded, Really? Why? Hand said, Well, I don't know. I guess because the church doesn't have what Mrs. Hand and I are looking for. Nose asked, Well, what are you looking for in a church? The tone in which he spoke these words was sympathetic, but even as he was speaking then, he knew he would dismiss Hand's answer. If the Hands couldn't see that Nose and the rest of the leadership were pointing the church body in the right direction, the body could do without them. Hand had to think before answering. He and Mrs. Hand liked Pastor Mouth and his family, and Minister of Music Ear meant well. He said, well, I guess we're looking for a place where people are more like us. We tried spending time with the legs, but we couldn't connect with them. (laughs) Next, we joined the small group for all the toes, but they kept talking about socks and shoes and odors, and that just doesn't interest us. Nose looked at him with genuine dismay. Aren't you concerned about odor? Sure, sure, but that's not for us. Then we attended the Sunday school for all you facial features. Do you remember? We came for several Sundays a couple of months ago. He said, it was great to have you. Thank you. But everyone just wanted to talk and listen and smell and taste. It felt like, well, it felt like you never wanted to get to work and get your hands dirty. Anyway, Mrs. Hand and I were thinking about checking out that new church over on the east side. We hear that they do a lot of clapping and hand raising, which is closer to what we need right now. (laughs) Nose replied, hmm, I see what you mean. We'd hate to see you go, but I guess you have to do what's good for you. Mrs. Hand nodded in agreement, lost in her own thoughts. Indeed, the small groups were a little cliquish. The music was at times a bit out of date, other times too modern. The program seemed sometimes silly. The teaching wasn't entirely to their liking. In the end, it was hard for the two of them to put their fingers on it, but they finally decided that the church wasn't for them. In addition to all that, Mrs. Hand knew that their daughter, Pinky, was not comfortable with the youth group. 
Everyone was so different from her, she felt out of joint. (laughs) Mrs. Hand then said something about how much she appreciated Nose and the leadership, but the conversation had already run on too long for Nose. Besides, her perfume made him want to sneeze. He thanked Mrs. Hand for her encouragement, repeated that he was sorry to hear of their departure, and then he turned and walked away. Who needed the hands? Apparently, they didn't need him. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. That's you, and that's me. Father, we ask, as the body of Christ in this place, that every member will find their place that every member will see that they've not been omitted, that they are not useless, that they are intentionally designed by your Spirit and placed in this body for a purpose and for a reason. Father, this is not a one Sunday in a sermon series experience. This is the ongoing life of the health of the church. And so we pray that your Spirit would continue to do this work where we would rejoice in others' gifts where we would seek to use ours to serve others, not to feel good about ourselves, that we would look for opportunities to represent the body of Jesus Christ in this place. Do this work in the kindness of your grace for your glory. And thank you that our hope And our satisfaction and our deliverance is not dependent upon us, but rather is rooted in your glorious faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.